Al Jazeera podcast. Taking center stage today is Dr. Rania Awad, a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine and founder of the Stanford Muslim Health and Islamic Psychology Lab. Welcome, Dr. Rania. Thank you so much. Ra. It's really a great honor to meet you today. But I want to start with um, personal uh, concern. A lot of women sent to me seeking advice on mental health. And there's always a common feeling of shame because many people around them uh, tell them that the faithful does not get depressed. Al-Mu'min la yaktaib. And then I see the Islamic lab you, you founded at Stanford. I read about the extensive research you did on Muslim mental health. You studied Islamic studies before psychiatry. So we need your verdict. Does seeking mental health contradict with faith? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I hear this often too, this idea that the believer, the mu'min, does not actually fall into any sort of depression or iktiab, like as you mentioned, because I feel like we've gone far from our understanding of our of the tradition of our Prophet wasallam, where there was an entire year in his life, mm-hmm. in his seerah, called Aam al-Huzun, mm-hmm. or the year of sadness, the year of sorrow, the year of grief. He had multiple losses that happened. And when you think about that year, even the companions around him were very concerned about how deep that grief was. And yet we know at the same time that the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, peace be upon him, was khayr khalqillah, right? Mm-hmm. The best of all creation. So you have someone who is so incredibly connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to God. And at the same time, that does not take away from feeling grief or mm-hmm. sorrow. And every day that he would wake up, we know that there's athkar, you know, kind of remembrances of the sabah and masab, morning and evening. And one of my favorite is the one that he says in the mornings, where he says, it starts off with, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-hammi wal-hazan. Mm. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from worry and grief. And he acknowledging that these are real human emotions, even as 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 best of a person you are, you're mm. still going to experience these emotions because Allah created these emotions. Mm. So when I hear people say this, it's almost like we've forgotten part of our tradition. We've forgotten stories like the story of Sayyidina Yaqub, Prophet Jacob, mm. who cried so extensively at the loss of his son, and later his other son as well. Into where the Quran itself speaks about how his grief caused him to have blindness, mm-hmm. or some people say kind of a kind of like a cataract situation, haziness of vision. Mm-hmm. Like this concept of you could be a prophet of God and mm-hmm. still have deep, deep husn. And it doesn't take away from your mm-hmm. being a believer. Mm-hmm. Mental health is very multifactorial. Mm-hmm. It's could be biological genetic, it could be social or environmental, Mm. it could be spiritual, it could be some combination of any of these. So when we go straight to the spiritual part and say, if you have belief, you won't get depressed, you're ignoring biology, genetics, social, environmental causes of mental illness. When you talk about um, sorrow and grief and concern, they resonate with the terms we use today in psychology and mental health, anxiety and depression. And when we think about psychology or the way uh, psychiatry presents psychology, they present it as a modern science. But you found out that it's actually not. Tell us more about it. But I had been trained, as you mentioned, in the Sharia sciences previous to this. We read the old text, the Mm -hmm. Torah, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, let's read what they have to say. Is there Mm -hmm. anything here? 
I started out with medical textbooks from the 7th, 8th, 9th centuries onward. You don't have to go very far because the physicians at that time were writing from the head to the toes. Mm -hmm. So you just get into a few chapters in and you're like, oh, wow, what is Mm -hmm. all of this? There's a whole science to this. And then I discovered it wasn't just medical textbooks. Today, psychology is under schools of medicine. But other than the sciences, psychology used to be something that was very multidisciplinary, and especially in the Islamic understanding. So you had writers who were contributing from theology, and you had writers contributing from philosophy, and writers contributing from spirituality, and others contributing from medical background. And this is what makes al-munafs, or the science of the self, Mm. or the soul, different Mm. from the Muslim past, in that they were very interdisciplinary in their understanding of the human psyche. Mm. It's much more than just the cognitive brain science. Today we think of neuroscience, and that's where psychiatry mostly sits. But actually, you think about it as something in which there is all the different disciplines come in to explain the Mm. human psyche. But maybe the misunderstanding between uh, Muslims and mental health is not really because they've forgotten their legacy, maybe because they simply don't know it. One of the things they don't know is that the first um, documented uh, mental health retreats were recorded in hospitals in the Islamic world called the Maristan. How did they look like? Who did they treat back then? Yes, this is part of my such an excitement to share this um, part of this research and figuring out okay, was it only theories that were being written by the great physicians and scholars of the Muslim past? Or do they take that theory and put it into practical implementation? Mm -hmm. And they did. And that's what you're referring to. Shortened, we say, Mm Madistan. The original word is Mm Bimadistan. The Bimad is the ill person in Farsi, and Stan is a location or an abode. The Arabic is Dar al-Shifa, right? The centers of healing. And that's where we're writing the book at the moment on how the centers of healing in the Muslim world, the Dara Shifas, they had the first documented uh, wards or sections for mental illness, the treatment of mental illness. So psychiatric sections next to all of the other sections. So whether Mm -hmm. it's surgery, internal medicine, ear, nose and throat, obstetrics, and so on and so forth. And that was an amazing discovery to realize Mm -hmm. that there wasn't discrimination between mental health and physical health mm. in their hospitals. And the root of this is that this, there was a very divine inspiration to this. Mm. And this is where the scholars that write about this, they quote specific hadith of the Prophet wasallam, And they talk about how when they came to ask, some companions came to ask him, shall we seek out treatment if we're ill? Mm. And he responded and said, tadawu ibadallah. Like, seek out treatments for your illnesses. Mm. So Allah does not send down an illness or does not create an illness unless He also has created its cure. Mm. And so what's beautiful about this is that they saw different illnesses in front of them and they felt inspired to figure out how to treat them and build institutions of healing for them, not discriminating between mental health and physical health. We've written a couple of papers recently. One is in the Harvard Review of Psychiatry, where we talk about Ar-Razi and how he instituted, our, to our understanding, the first instance of psychiatric aftercare, wow. which means after a patient is, is discharged from the hospital, the mental health hospital, he makes sure that they had three gold dinars mm. at that point in time. And he says two of which were really for the person to be able to, with dignity, come back into their society, into the community they're in, without people asking them, where were you and how come? And they were able to integrate fully. And the third of the gold dinars was to start their own business. 
A lot of um, uh, researchers in uh, psychology also um, uh, coined uh, OCD as um, in a disorder of our modern times, resulting from our modern times. Right. To discover that it was there since the ninth century, uh, did it really uh, correlate with OCD as we know it today? And did they treat it the same way we do today? One of the people that I came across in my readings um, as I was reading all the olden texts was somebody by the name of Abu Zayd al-Balkhi. Mm -hmm. He's from the ninth century. And as he was writing, he has a small book. It's a really a treatise, really, that he calls Musalih al-Abdani wal-Anfus. Mm -hmm. So the sustenance of the body and soul is how you would translate that today. And as I was reading through, he writes all of these physical illnesses. And then the second half of the book, he says, and now I'm going to dedicate this to mental illnesses because the physicians of my era are not paying enough attention to this, no. but it's just as important. And then he has these chapters one by one, and I came across the one that really surprised me. All of it was beautiful, but the one that really surprised me was, um, you know, where he talks about wasawisu <laughs> sadr, basically the waswasa, which everybody knows. There's, and that's the you know, Arabic translation exactly. of uh, OCD, waswas. Waswas, mm -hmm. like, a, you know, there's this, this kind of, a, everybody has a little bit of it, but what he says is that's normative, mm -hmm. but for some people, they're going to have a higher level of it. This is where it's pathological. It requires treatment. And then he outlines literally what exactly the classification of this illness is, how you treat it. And in the treatments, I was blown away mm -hmm. because he talks about exactly what you find in today's understanding of OCD treatment. He says there's medication that needs to be taken. Mm -hmm. There's therapy, talk therapy that needs to happen. And that really surprised me. I thought, subhanAllah, they're talking about talk therapy. Mm -hmm. And then he talks not just about a specific form of talk therapy, which is exposure therapy, mm -hmm. which is what we use today for obsessive compulsive disorders. Mm -hmm. And also he says, you'll also have to rely on God. So a spiritual component. Mm -hmm. To me, this kind of this trio, you know, this kind of three pronged approach of treating mental illness, particularly OCD, was so fascinating because in all of our classes on psychology, they do call it a modern illness. Mm -hmm. So even from a scientific point of view, we know that this constellation of symptoms existed in for humans much longer than what history tells us. Also, we change the narrative. It's no longer this very Eurocentric view of psychology where everything is discovered in Europe and that's where psychology starts. Mm. It's actually something so many civilizations have talked about and the Muslims in particular really contributed heavily to. We talked about bringing uh, mental health to Muslim communities. Uh, what about bringing faith and Islam to clinical psychology. Why did you find the need to found the Islamic lab? Yeah, the, the Muslim Mental Health and Islamic Psychology Lab was really a, a project after some of these early publications. It became clear to me that we didn't have enough research on Muslims specifically, particularly those of the diaspora, those who are living outside of the Muslim majority countries, mm -hmm. um, but even within it too. Mm -hmm. And a part of the work was really to figure out how do we best treat this community because so many people had a stigma related to mental health. There was almost a sense of, this is very Western. It doesn't mm. belong to us. I'm not going to find any use in it. Mm. What's the point of talking all of my dirty laundry to somebody who's a foreign, who's foreign to me and my family? Or, or is it kind of, there's a shame in kind of mm. talking about what's within the family, outside of the family. Um, and what was interesting to me is a lot of what I was finding historically actually documented completely differently. Mm. that Muslims were very much at the forefront of this, including things like talk therapy. Mm -hmm. And we're very much advocates of making sure that you get the help you need when you need it. 
Or I think maybe the main question that comes to my mind is when did it stop the whole treating of mental health and taking care of our uh, mental health? When did it stop? When did we have this break that causes the stigma today? The stigma has always been around. It's probably as old as the beginning of man, honestly. Mm -hmm. But I do think that um, you find a real difference happening when you see that there were a lot of colonized ideas and powers coming into mm. Muslim-majority lands. The reason for that is the view on mental illness, parallel to it, the understandings of mental illness in Europe were very much either spiritual, like this was some supernatural possession or reason, so you send them to the people of religion to deal with them, mm -hmm. or they're witches and they're burned at the stake as a witch. And so you really don't have a medicalized understanding of the treatment of this, uh, of any mental illnesses, even though at the same periods of time you're finding in the Muslim lands, these hospitals that are literally treating mental illness from a medical point of view. And we're talking about centuries worth of a mm -hmm. difference. Where does the change happen? When you start having colonial powers come in and say, replacing a lot of the indigenous forms of healing and even education, replacing languages, replacing the medical textbooks, mm -hmm. replacing the concepts mm -hmm. is very much today, even if the countries aren't colonized, you find the minds are still. And I think this is where there is needing a revival movement to happen, to understand that, and, and psychology is heading in this direction today, mm -hmm. that what we have is a very narrow view of treating mental illness, mm -hmm. but a holistic understanding is one in which you bring in spirituality, you're bringing in environmental social issues, you're bringing in understanding the biology, the genetics mm -hmm. all together. Beyond mental health, uh, where do you think we need now um, a role of uh, Islam and faith and maybe Muslim scholars in medicine and uh, medical uh, disciplines? I, I really feel that, that if anybody should be at the forefront of this discussion, it should be the Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, history proves it. All of our heritage proves this. But also there is this very kind of um, divine basis to our understanding. The baqas of the sharia, basically the foundational principles of the deen, of the religion itself, essentially say you have to have preservation of the intellect, mm -hmm. right? That's one of the maqas, it's one of the foundational principles. And so if this is at all jeopardized, then really it should be us at the forefront of making sure that this is happening. And we were at that point. Mm -hmm. The revival movement would say, let's make sure that this is happening today, not distancing ourselves at all, actually bridging modern medicine, modern science, all the advances that have happened, but in a holistic view. Mm -hmm. Because the concept of kind of an asylum, of locking somebody up who has mental illness and not giving them the kind of care they need to really kind of the root of the problem and solve it, or just throwing pills at them, isn't going to actually solve the issue here. But but there's also a need for Islam to be part of the uh, the conversation about medical advances in terms of palliative care, in terms of bioethics as well. Do you feel there's a lack of research or um, uh, involvement of faith in medical research in general or Islam in particular? In general. I would mm -hmm. say it's definitely in general. Um, I think Islam and Muslims have a lot to contribute to this. Mm -hmm. um, there are a number of researchers who are working today that I'm, I'm very happy to be part of this group of researchers who are working on what we call religious and spiritual competencies in clinical care. So treating the, uh, basically training the physicians and all of the therapists who are going to come through into this field to make sure that they're not ignoring this area of spirituality, which could be very, very useful to somebody who is God-centered. Mm -hmm. Like if your worldview is a God-centered worldview and the coping mechanisms you use have a religious 
basis to them. If you cut this out completely and make mm -hmm. it secular, it's not going to be feeling very connected, which is why you have so many Muslims saying, I don't know about this therapy thing. It feels very Western. <sighs> I don't know if it's Western as much as it's actually secular mm. is really what the issue is. And when you bring spirituality into it, suddenly you find people feeling, yeah, this feels right. This mm. feels like I'm actually benefiting. Mm. And that's where there's a group of researchers, not just Muslim. I have Christian colleagues, Jewish colleagues, Hindu and Buddhist colleagues who are actually trying to bring spirituality into the discussion on psychology. Thank you very much, Dr. Rania. It was really a great pleasure to be talking to you today. It's wonderful to talk to you as well. I appreciate this conversation. This episode was produced in partnership with the Islam and Muslims Initiative, an international platform that connects Muslims and non-Muslims in the realms of religion, politics, business, media, academia, and civil society.